Hey, it's so good to worship with you today, and um, thank you, worship team, for leading us so well each week. Um, you know, we look at this list that we just read, and there are these names that are familiar to us, and uh, these are names that are people who are judges. Um, David is a king, Samuel the uh, prophet, and the prophets as well. So there's a list of names here, and when you look at these names, you probably know someone who is named after someone here. Right? We have a Samuel, we have a David, we had a David up here, right? Um, you probably might know a Gideon, you might know, uh, maybe you know a Jephthah, that's kind of uh, the serious Christian family, right? And then um, like the homeschool family, right? And then you have like um, uh, Barak, you probably have heard of a Barak, right? In the last several years, so on. So we, we named our kids after these people because uh, they do something great. We want our kids to be like them. Right? We want them to grow up and uh, be leaders and conquerors and be in charge and uh, to do wonderful things. So we name our kids after them, hoping for much success. What's interesting here is that uh, these uh, people who are mentioned have done great things. The judges and the prophets and King David and so on, they've done great things. Um, but yet they've all done it in a posture of weakness. It wasn't because they grew up strong and they were born strong and boy, they just had so much power. Uh, they all had some weakness and God used them in the weakness to do something for his glory. You know, we can go through this list and just as the writer of Hebrews says in verse 32, for time would fail me to tell of these people. We don't have enough time to talk about this. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's not the place here to sit and talk about all that they did. But he emphasizes the things that they did. And in verse uh, 33 and 34, in these two verses, there's a list of nine things that they have accomplished. Nine characteristics of these heroes of our faith. And uh, Donald Guthrie in his commentary takes the nine and he now breaks it into three subgroups. And he says the first three are related, the second three are related, and the third three are related. And we're going to try to do that here today and look at kind of three main ideas from all nine. All right? This will not be a nine-point sermon, right? This will be kind of a three-point sermon. And the words that come to mind uh, for us here is this idea of justice, perseverance, and transformation. And all in the context of this idea of weakness. Uh, it wasn't the strongest that God picked. It was often the weakest. It wasn't the most powerful. It was one that didn't have power that God would transform. And so we see this here, and we see this idea of all three, uh, in all three. So we start with this idea of justice, right? Uh, it says in the verse 33, the first three that are mentioned, the accomplishments that these people have accomplished are mentioned. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. So you have this picture here that they obtained kingdoms. They took over land. They now built their land there. And it's in the midst of that they enforce justice. And justice is an interesting word. You know, when you think of justice, you might think of what comes to mind is a policeman capturing a bad guy or a judge sentencing a criminal. Um, you might think of a hero that has done something, even a superhero figure. And there is just that aspect of justice, but there is so much more to that. Um, you know, it's interesting that this word justice, there's a couple different words in the uh, Old Testament is used to use this word justice. Uh, Nicholas Walterstorff, um, in his book on justice, talks about it in a very technical way of the two parts of justice. And I just want to give us a quick overview of this. 
The first is this idea of what he calls rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is capturing the bad guy, putting him in prison, and then having him pay a fine and helping the victim. So this is when some injustice has happened, we come in and there is justice that happened there. And so, um, you know, this is what he calls rectifying justice. But there's another facet of justice. Sometimes the Bible translates it as righteousness, but it's the word that means uh, what uh, he calls, uh, Walterstorff calls primary justice. Primary justice, is the idea of giving everyone their due of respect because they're made in the image of God. So treating someone who is less powerful than me with just the amount of respect as someone who is more powerful, someone who now is weak to take care of them, this idea of a relational justice. Right? We're all made in the image of God, and every person is equally valuable, so we take care of these people. And it's a relational idea, and he calls it primary justice. Now, Tim Keller takes this, and he does a little Bible study with this in his book, Generous Justice. He takes the two ideas, rectifying justice, uh, primary justice, he attaches two Hebrew words for justice to it. And the first word is this word mishfat, right? the idea of rectifying justice. And the second word that he ties to it is this word sedequa. Sedequa is this idea of a relational justice, right, as we talked about. I care for someone. I will now uh, inconvenience myself for someone else. I will sacrifice some of my things for someone else in need. I will share what I have for someone. So there's that picture as well. It's a relational idea. And when you go to now... Uh, Amos chapter 5 verse 24 which Martin Luther King Jr. had made so well in one of his sermons and he says let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream this word justice is mishfat it's the word rectifying justice be a people who will intervene and help be a people who will go and now stand with those who are been victimized but also that verse says and righteousness like an ever flowing stream not only that, may there be this sedequa, this idea of relationship. May that happen as you love those around you. And so if the righteousness or the sedequa or the primary justice happens, you don't need rectifying justice. What does this mean here? This means that these people, that God by faith has allowed them to practice justice. Now think of all the uh, privileges you have, right? Whatever position God has placed you in, maybe you're, you have a title of mom or dad, you have a title at work, and you're someone else's boss, you know, you own something, and you have some influence, you have a role at church, you have a title. I think of all the titles and positions you have, it's never for your own sake, it's now to, uh, to enforce justice, it's to now take care of someone. And it's to now go and help someone when there is injustice. And this is the idea of justice. This is what they did um, that is so important. And you know, one of the things that we um, do often at church through our six aid initiative is we try to help these nonprofit organizations that do work. Because this is our form of justice, right? And some of you will say, and some of the people that come to church will say, well, you know, uh, I'm not really into all of that. Like, you know, I'm not into the social justice thing or going out and helping people thing. I just go to church because it's fun, man. I have a good time. I have friends there. And there's some others that say, no, I'm not here for the fun and the talking and sharing and all this. I'm just here to 
I'm here because they help others. I want to be part of helping others. Well, justice entails both. It's when we sit in a circle in a community group and we share life and now we pray together, we give of ourselves and now we share together, there is justice happening. When we go out and we help these women at home on the green pastures and we are trying to help them in their whole recovery healing process, there is a part of justice. And when we go to Olive Crest and we're gathering things and trying to love them for children who don't have a home, there is now justice being done. And so when he says they enforce justice, you could picture a land that they took over and they become God's people. And as God's people, they lived in this way. They took care of those, the widows, the orphans, uh, those who were uh, ill, those who were older, those, the younger ones who were helpless. They helped the defenseless, the fatherless. But not only that, they went and they took care of those who've been victimized as well. And so there was this picture of what we can do. That we can now uh, live in justice in this way. But this is a picture of how the people of God is helping the weak, right? There's a steam of weakness through here. The second thing we see is this idea of perseverance. So these people are placed in now uh, uh, Samson and David and the prophets are all placed with these titles and then this position. You know, you look at all of them, they all suffered a great deal. Their lives were filled with much weakness and, di and disappointments. So some of us, you may look at your life and say, boy, my life is just not going the way I thought it would. It sure isn't going the way that others, when I look at them on social media or whatever, their life seems to be going so well. My life, I'm having some issues. I'm having some hardships. Well, the truth about life is that it is filled with these types of hardships. And how we persevere uh, by faith um, is different than how the world may persevere. It says here, it's interesting, the next three on the list of nine, right? of qualities uh, and achievements. In verse 33, the next three are very vivid. It says, stop the mouths of lions, quench the fire, a power of fire, escape the edge of the sword. Lion, fire, sword. All were used now to kill these people. All were used as a torture. All were used against people. Eh, you know, when I first read this, you know, the stop the mouths of a lion, I mean, my first thought, picture I had was like a, a scene of a circus, you know, and they're, you know, someone's messing with a lion. No, it's, they're used to eat and kill people. Uh, Daniel was in the lion's den. Samson killed the lion. Um, quenched the power of fire. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were thrown into fire. The sword that was against them. How did they persevere? It was by faith. How did they go through this? It was by faith. And some of you are going through some hardships. Yeah, it might not be the sword. It might not be a lion or fire. But yet your life, you know you are going through some kind of hardship. By faith, we can persevere. Uh, this, many of you have heard of, the, of a famous author and preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Right? If you've been in the church, you've heard of him. Uh, if you come to church, you know, often I or the other pastors, we, you see a quote by Spurgeon. If you go to the Christian bookstore, his book is not in the bestsellers list, but it's in the classic section, right? And the covers are kind of dull looking and it's on sale sometimes. It's next to the C.S. Lewis books and so on. It's, it's, it's a classic. 
Um, they say he preached something like 20,000 sermons. He was one of the greatest preachers of his day in, in, in history. Um, and uh, he died at the young age of 57. And I wanted to share a little bit about his life. He pastored one church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, for 38 years. So he started at the young, you know, age of 20, and he, he continued. And thousands and thousands would come and hear him preach. Uh, and he did so, so well. And you would think, when you look at someone like him, or you look at the people who are mentioned here, that life must have been pretty good. Because when we, in this world, the way the world thinks a, a blessed life is, it means no hardships, no difficulties. It is just smooth sailing. And why wouldn't someone like this, who was an instrument of God, have a life of smooth sailing? But his life was filled with difficulties. Uh, many hardships, but he persevered. Um, just a, uh, several I want to list to you. First of all, he was, his wife, Susanna, um, suffered uh, some physical uh, illness for most of her life after the age of 33. It's interesting that she gave birth to twins, the biographers tell us. And yet they were both very sad about this, not, not because they had twins, um, but because back in those days, people would have so many children. A lot, you know, you would have, like uh, Spurgeon himself, his mother had 17 children, right? So for them, when they look at, we just have two, it was like, oh my gosh, we don't have enough. Because a lot of children wouldn't make it through uh, and, and live to adulthood. So they, they wanted a lot of children. And so had two children, ended up getting ill. And some people, they don't know exactly what it was. Some say it was a tumor or some other ailment. And, and she was uh, sick to the point where she was almost bedridden. Uh, most of their life after she was 33. She rarely got to hear him preach in person, uh, though thousands would come to hear him. Not only that, um, he suffered physically. Uh, he battled gout and uh, rheumatism, uh, Bright's disease, which is a inflammation of his kidneys, and the pain that he started to suffer started at age 35. And it continued for the rest of his life, and the biographers tell us that he died uh, in this pain. And so there are stories and recollections of him and how he could barely stand up at the pulpit to preach because of the pain that he was going through at the time. Not only did he suffer physically, he suffered uh, emotionally. There was so much slander about him. Uh, and often it came from other pastors and ministers in the area because of his fame, because of his success. People were now writing about him, and they were slandering him, and um, uh, saying that he preaches something bad, or he is a bad person, and it is bad. And so they, were, they would write things about him, and he had to deal with that on the internal side. He also had a long bout of depression, something that he couldn't control, something that he couldn't snap out of. And so uh, it's interesting to see, and it's sobering to see. Here is a man of God in the history of the church, man, one of the uh, shining lights, and he suffered so much in his life. He says about suffering, he says about his good times and his tough times, he says this, and he makes this illustration, and I want to share this with you. I am afraid that all the grace that I have got on my comfort, uh, got out of my comfort and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. So he says all his good times, comfort, happy hours, all the good stuff, the goodness of that, he says, you could put it on a penny. Because it wasn't that valuable compared to, but the good that I received from my sorrows, the pains, the griefs, is altogether incalculable. 
He says, affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. And so he says the good times, what we might say, boy, this person is blessed because they have a comfortable life, the good times. He says that, the goodness of that, you could measure on a penny, but the hardships, it's like furniture in my house. It somehow brings me an essential comfort and a need. And he goes through this. And he perseveres through this. Physical ailments, slander, depression, the illness of his wife, the disappointment of not having many children, all of these things he endures, him and his wife Susanna endure because of their faith in God. You know, not that long ago, there was a, a very popular book and a talk that came out by Angela Duckworth and she talked about what is the uh, uh, predictor of success in a student or in anyone. And after all these studies have done, there was one quality that would predict success. It was the word grit, right? They would just work hard. And it, was, uh, it, went very, it got very popular on TED Talks. Even in our staff meeting and training, we uh, went through some of these thoughts, you know, and uh, these ideas. But the grit that we see in the life of a Christian is not simply just a human uh, passion. It's not just a decision I make because, boy, my grandma taught me what that was or my, my dad worked so hard and, you know, I learned and I'm just going to grit and I'm just a tough guy. No, it's so much more than that. It is God who allows us to persevere through this. It is God who is your strength. Even to the point that Paul says in Colossians 1.11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He puts these words, endurance, patience, and he puts it, accompanies it with this word that we often think have no, has no relation to these words, joy. Patience and joy. Last week I had the uh, exciting opportunity that I had to go and renew my license, right? And uh, that's like a dreaded thing that you have to do. Um, anything with acronyms that send you something, like IRS, DMV, you're like, oh, no, you know, what do I have to do? I don't look forward to that. And I tried to do it online, but they said, no, you got to come in person. It's expiring soon, and you got to do the scientific eye test on a piece of paper. You know, and I kept practicing. I was a little worried. Like, I was like, make sure I, I could see it. And I remember talking to my wife saying, oh, my gosh, I have to go to DMV. I have to go to DMV, and I was dreading this. And I think she was kind of laughing at me or maybe praying for me. I don't know. But, uh, and, and I was telling her, I was like, when should I go? And I was trying to strategically figure out how I can go. Because by the time I was trying to do the appointment, it was going to be too late. I said, should I go when the door first opens? I said, no, but all these eager people before work, they'll all be lined up. So I said, I don't want to compete with them. So I thought, well, maybe like right before lunch. But I said, no, all these people are going to get off of lunch early and they're going to come. So and maybe right after lunch. But I said, a lot of people are going to take a half day to get there to do this and they're going to know. And there was no way around it. And I said, I just went about an hour before. I went about 4 p.m. Fully charged up my phone. I was like ready. You know, I used the bathroom. I was ready for the wait. And I got in line and the line was out the door, wrapped around outside. And, uh, you know, by your prayers, I got my license renewed. I, self, I went through that, right? But there's no joy when it comes to patience, if you think about this. But somehow God tells us, as you are now 
being patient and you are enduring whatever you are going through. He says, even in that, you could have some sort of joy. So it's not just a grit, but it's a grit that is accompanied by joy. That's what faith delivers to us. Because he knows better. Because he is the answer to all that we need. And so we can persevere well. And the last picture we see is this idea of transformation. So the weak is made strong and the strong now help the weak enforce justice. And what we see here in the last three is a picture of this. In verse 34, we see the last three of this descriptions, of these descriptions. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Made strong out of weakness. This is something that is passive. This is something that is done to you. So he didn't make himself strong. Barak or Gideon or David, they didn't just make themselves strong. Someone made them strong. Someone did this for them. Out of their weakness, it says. It also says that they became mighty in war. What is this assuming? It insinuates that they had no might in war. That they were not fighters. They did not know how to go to war. They were not big and strong. But that was made and they became, there was a transformation. And what happened? They put foreign armies to flight. They were always, when Israel was at war, they were always the underdog. They were always outnumbered. They were always weaker. And it was a continual picture of God giving them what they needed. You know, you see, you remember, uh, as Gideon has mentioned, you know, Gideon is called to go to war. He rounds up 22,000 to go to war. 22,000 is not enough. They're not skilled enough or trained enough. And God says, you have too many. You might think that it was because of you. And he he now shrinks it down to 10,000. And 10,000, he says, he looks around at 10,000. Okay, we're going to go to war. We're probably going to lose, but they go. He says, that's still too many. You might think that you did it yourself. And he takes the 10,000. He makes them go drink from the water. And he says, only the ones that are scooping the water with their hands, only the ones that are lapping it, you will take. And he ends up with 300. 300 men. 300 men who are armed with a jar, clay jar, and a torch light at night. That's how they go to war. They break the jar, make the noise, they show the fire, they yell, and everyone in the middle, their enemy is confused, and God confuses them, and they end up killing each other. But that's a picture of God saying, in your weakness, I will use you. It's interesting, you know, and Paul talks about weakness and strength quite a bit, right? Because obviously he wrote almost half the New Testament and when you read uh, 2 Corinthians 12, that many of you know so well, it's that passage where Paul has a direct communication with the Lord Jesus, and he asks him to take away the thorn in his flesh, the thorn in his side, right? And we use that today. The world uses that phrase, oh, you know, this thorn in the flesh, so on. Uh, commentators have tried to figure out what it was. Some say it might have been a stomach ailment because it talks about that. It, it could have been um, he had a... a issue with his eyes he wasn't seeing that well some said it wasn't a physical thing it was people in his life who were attacking him whatever it was he prays to God and he asked God three times to take it away and the answer he receives in 2 Corinthians 12 9 is this he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness Paul responds to that saying therefore I will boast 
all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My grace is sufficient. It's in the present tense. It means it's a continual daily provision of grace in our lives. The ever-present sufficiency of God's grace. My grace is sufficient. It's interesting, right? Because many times um, people say, well, I prayed to God to take this away. God's not taking this away. God, you must not really care. Or you are not there. And that's the conclusion. But even someone like the Apostle Paul prays, God, would you take this away? God, can you help me and take this away? God, can you take this thorn away? And yet Christ answers him, my grace is sufficient. And even when the, the answer was a no, it was still an answered prayer here. Because it wasn't so much the change in the circumstance, it was now the presence of God in his life. My grace is sufficient. God is going to use our weaknesses, our tears, our hardships. And as we sit and worship together, if we could sit and talk about the things that, man, the, the shattered dreams that we have, the regrets that we carry with us, um, the, the, the hardships at home, the illnesses of loved ones, the lack of financial security, whatever it is, and we could sit and talk. And we would be able to say, gosh, you know, it is so tough. And maybe God will change it and maybe not. But what he will do is he will be present with us and his grace is sufficient for us. You know, it's uh, just this last week in our community group, we're sitting around and talking and we've spent so much time enough together. We've seen some of the children grow up and we've shared enough. We've prayed together enough. And, but even then, it was a sharing of our weaknesses. Boy, you know, this is happening to my kids. This is happening to my parents. This is happening at school, at work. It was a continual sharing of this. But somehow in the midst of that, God is at work. And we pray with hope because God is now in the midst of this. And the greatest picture of weakness used by God for strength is the picture of the God Almighty demonstrating his power through the cross of Christ. That on the cross, he died for us. And people say, well, where's the army of angels? Or can't you now call them to help you? And they're mocking him. They're, you're not strong, you're weak. But they've lost the whole point that God used now the weakness of Christ to demonstrate the greatest act that was ever done, the power of God. And if he does that with our Lord Jesus Christ, he will do it through our lives. That as we understand what it is to now take up our cross daily and follow after him in the midst of us carrying our own cross, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. May he be glorified through your weaknesses, your hardships. May you run to him before you run for solutions. And would you accept what he says when he says, my grace is sufficient, my power is made perfect in your weakness. May that be manifested every day of our lives. Um, we strive for greatness. All of you work hard and all of you do, you know, study hard and work hard and all those things. But we do it so that God would be glorified. And whatever he gives us, we find his grace 
uh, in everything. And so I, I pray that this would resonate in our hearts here uh, with us today. Uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Uh, Lord, how we need you so much, and um, um, God, how we need your help in all that we do. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us a faith that hopes in what is to come, a confidence, Lord, in what is unseen in you. And God, whatever hardships we might face here, that we would, Lord, enforce justice and help those who are weaker. And God, that we would persevere and we would continually be transformed by your presence in our lives. So God, we need that. Uh, we need your strength every day. Uh, so we rely on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.